Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about the Mother Goddess of the West, King Mu of Zhou, and AI. I wanted to tell you about Xi Wang Mu, the Mother Goddess of the West, one of the most important and most familiar deities in the Taoist pantheon. In fact, some years ago, I was able to visit the lake in the Karakora Mountains of the Alpine Highway connecting China and Pakistan that is identified with the Emerald Lake Yaochi, where the mother goddess was supposed to have built her palace. I'm sorry to report that I found no palace of the gods, but the lake sure was beautiful. And Xi Wang Mu has had many depictions in Chinese tradition throughout the centuries. The Shanghai Jing, the Book of Mountains and Seas, that ancient tract that is half geography and half mythology, tells us that the mother goddess was a deity in charge of natural disasters and epidemics and that, though she resembled a human being, she had the tail of a leopard and the teeth of a tiger. Han Wudi Nei Zhuan, the domestic biography of Emperor Wudi of the Han, written in the Han Dynasty or after, depicts the mother goddess as a great beauty, more Athena or Aphrodite, than a woman part tiger and part leopard. The Ming Dynasty novel, Journey to the West, depicts the mother goddess as a dignified queen of the gods, a kind of Hera without the jealousy. In the novel, she hosts a banquet for the gods at her palace by the Emerald Lake, but the monkey king comes and makes a horrendous mess of the event. But today I want to focus on one unique account of the mother goddess of the West, Xi Wang Mu. And by the time I'm done with this story, I intend to have connected her not only to ancient Chinese history, but to Icelandic sagas, classical Greek thought, Tang Dynasty poetry, the Old Testament of the Bible and Ethiopian tradition, the fiction of the German romantic author E.T.A. Hoffmann, and artificial intelligence. Let's see how I do. The unique account about the mother goddess of the West, of which I speak, comes from Mu Tianzi Zhuan, the biography of King Mu of the Zhou. The Zhou dynasty, as you may or may not recall, was established in, we believe, 1046 BC, and was the last of the three truly ancient dynasties in Chinese history. King Mu was the fifth king of the Zhou. The historical records of Sima Qian from the Han Dynasty tells us that King Mu was born around 1027 BC and lived to incredibly around 922 BC. 
if we believe these dates, then King Mu lived to the age of about 105. And he was believed not to have ascended the throne until about 976 BC, when he was 50 going on 51, and he ruled for some 55 years. Although the historical records tells us about King Mu, a lot of stories about him come from other sources. In 281 AD, during the Jing Dynasty, some tomb raiders broke into the tomb of a king of the kingdom of Wei from the Warring States era. Specifically, it was probably the tomb of King Anli of Wei, who died in 243 BC. In the tomb, they found piles of bamboo slips. Note that before the Chinese invented paper during the Han Dynasty, they used bamboo slips for the purpose of writing and the creation of texts. Some scholars then took the uncovered bamboo slips and found that they constituted a couple of complete texts. One was the biography of King Mu of Zhou, written during the Warring States. Unless, of course, the text was a forgery and written by a Jing Dynasty author, but we'll set aside that possibility for now. And this biography tells us about the king's peripatetic life. It seemed as though in the Bronze Age, a Chinese king was hardly ever really required in the capital. King Mu fought many battles up and down the map. On top of that, he was an avid hunter and traveler. Between the 13th and 17th years of his reign, with his eight famous stallions pulling his chariot, he undertook a western expedition. The Karakoram Mountains I mentioned earlier, he supposedly went over it, or at least saw it, besides the Mongolian steppes, the Tarim Basin, and much besides. And some 12,000 li west of Zhou Dynasty China, he arrived at the country of the Mother Goddess of the West. This was, according to another text dug up from the same tomb in 281 AD, in the 17th year of the reign of King Mu, 961 BC. I'm going to pause here to draw the connection to the Greeks and the Icelandics. Euhemerus was born in what is now Messina, Sicily, in the 4th century BC. He served at the court of the Macedonian king Cassander, and he propounded a theory about Greek mythology that came to bear his name, Euhemerism. Euhemerism holds that much of mythology finds its origin in real events and real personalities. The Olympian gods, under this view, were kings and heroes from the deep past, whose lives and deeds came to be mythologized until they became gods. Later Christian writers quite liked Euhemerism because it justified their view that pagan gods 
weren't real, but were false idols. And when Snorri Sturluson came to write the Prose Edda of Iceland in the 13th century, he wished to tell the story, the stories, of the Norse gods like Odin and Thor, but he was writing in an already Christianizing Scandinavia. So in his prologue to the Edda, he gave a euhemeristic account of the Norse gods. Odin and Thor and so on, according to Snorri, were actually princes and warriors of ancient Troy. Thor, the god of thunder, was really Tror, son of Troan, daughter of Priam, the king of Troy, making him also the nephew of the Trojan hero Hector. Snorri claimed that these princes escaped from Troy when it fell, and traveled across Europe to its northern and western corners, where their superior culture caused the local people to make them kings, and eventually to worship them as gods. Okay, so back to the biography of King Mu. What the author of this biography was giving us was a euhemeristic account of the mother goddess of the West. Because according to this text, the mother goddess was in fact the queen or princess of this distant country. When King Mu visited, he brought bolts of silk as gifts, a long-standing Chinese luxury good that this nation presumably didn't have. This distant society appeared to be less than settled. The mother goddess described her own situation as surrounded by tigers and leopards, accompanied by all manners of birds. Although that image of being friends with birds and beasts rather evokes a Disney princess. Nonetheless, this nation was fully capable of impressive hospitality, and the mother goddess hosted a banquet for the king on the banks of the Emerald Lake. Now, where was this Emerald Lake, and where was this country that King Mu apparently reached? I mentioned that this place was said to be some 12,000 li, west of the Zhou capital. The trouble is, this unit of measure, li, changed throughout Chinese history. By one definition of a li, 12,000 li away from the Zhou capital would have put King Mu somewhere in Western Asia or even in Europe. Can we believe that? Can we believe that a Chinese king in the 10th century BC traveled as far as Europe and back? This is what they call big if true. By another definition of Li, 12,000 Li would have only put this country in modern-day Xinjiang, or even closer than that in the modern-day Chinese province of Gansu. We should note that the ancient texts also referred to her country as Kunlun, and modern-day Kunlun Mountains lies on the northern end of the Tibetan Plateau. As I said earlier, I have visited the place often identified as the Emerald Lake, 
and it's in the Karakoram Mountains, leading from China to Pakistan. But so much for location. Back to the story of King Mu's visit with the Mother Goddess. King Mu seemingly struck up a romantic relationship with her. Although, note that if we are to believe the dates associated with King Mu, then by this time he was 67 years old, hardly the image of a strapping young warrior king. He and she hiked up a mountain together and carved their names on a rock in the manner of teenagers in love, something like King Mu Hearts Mother Goddess. In Sima Tian's historical records, we are told that the king so enjoyed his stay with the Mother Goddess that he forgot all thoughts of going home. It was only when news reached him that Xu Yanwang, the king of Xu, which was a kingdom that nominally submitted to the Zhou, had rebelled, that King Mu jumped back on his chariot and raced home to fight the war. Back in the biography of King Mu, we are told that when he was about to depart to return to China, the mother goddess sang to him, asking him through her song whether she would ever see him again. King Mu replied with a promise to come back to her in three years. The Tang Dynasty poet Li Shangying, famous for love poems, depicted this image of the mother goddess longing for her Chinese lover to return. Yao chi amu yi chuang kai, huang zhu ge sheng dong di ai, ba jun yi xing san wan li, mu wang he shi bu chong lai. By the Emerald Lake, the mother goddess looks out from her window. Outside, the reedy songs sound terribly sad. Your eight stallions can ride thirty thousand li a day. So why, O oh King Mu, have you not yet returned? But remember how I told you another text was found in 281, in that tomb, along with the biography of King Mu. So this text, known as Zhu Shu Jinian, or Chronicles in Bamboo Slips, tells us that King Mu and the Mother Goddess did manage to see each other again. In fact, they were apart for less than a year. The text tells us that after King Mu returned to China in the 17th year of his reign, later in the same year, the Mother Goddess came to China to see him and King Mu had her stay in one of his palaces. So it would seem that she really missed him quite badly, and couldn't wait to see if he would fulfill his promise of coming back in three years. On his part, though, if he had her stay at one of his palaces, but not the one he used himself, then it would seem that he was now treating her more as a guest than as a lover. Maybe because he was still busy with wars and adventures, or maybe because back in China he already had wives who would get jealous. Because, sadly for the mother goddess, 
King Mu's true love was someone else, the consort known as Shengji. Chapter six of the biography of King Mu, the final chapter of the book, is focused on how Shengji died, and King Mu was inconsolable. It seems that Shengji was his true love, and the mother goddess was only a fling. Curiously, in yet another ancient text, the Taoist tract Lietzi, there is a suggestion that when King Mu went to visit the mother goddess, his consort Shengji went with him. One section of Lietzi tells a story from when King Mu was on his way back from Kunlun, but had yet to reach China, and it tells us that at this time Shengji was with him. Suggesting that she accompanied him for the whole trip. Would it have been strange or awkward for King Mu to be shacking up with this foreign lady when he had brought his existing consort with him? Maybe not terribly so. Maybe a bit of philandering was par for the course for a king. Or, and this is a fascinating idea. King Mu had actually gone to Kunlun to visit relatives. Think about it. In the descriptions of King Mu's travels, when he faced other foreign countries, it was often in the context of conflict. But when it came to Kunlun, the land of the Mother Goddess, he was instantly treated as an honored guest, and he expected to be treated as such. Having brought all that silk as gifts, and then, less than a year after he returned to China, the mother goddess paid him a return visit, also expecting to be treated as an honored guest. So it would appear that Zhou China and the Kunlun of the mother goddess were two nations not unfamiliar with each other, despite being separated by great distance. There is a theory that the royal family of the Zhou and its aristocracy were actually migrants or invaders into China from somewhere to the west. If this theory holds water, then perhaps this Kunlun was the homeland of the Zhou, and when King Mu went there, he was basically visiting cousins. In which case. The mother goddess would have been a sort of second cousin with whom he found a mutual attraction, in which case it wouldn't have been that strange for him to have brought a girlfriend. But that is speculation. Whatever this distant nation was, and whatever was the relationship between the mother goddess and King Mu, even if she was disappointed in love, she received. The consolation prize of being immortalized in Chinese mythology as the queen of the gods. Again, if we accept this euhemeristic interpretation of Chinese mythology, and I'll just note, by the by, also that this entire story rather reminds me of the story of the queen of Sheba visiting King Solomon in the Bible. In the Kings and Chronicles, Ethiopian tradition to this day holds 
that King Solomon had a child with the Queen of Sheba, and he became the emperor of Ethiopia. Okay, there are just a couple of associations remaining that I promised I'd make that I haven't gotten to yet. First, the German Romantic author E.T.A. Hoffmann, and second, artificial intelligence, which everyone is talking about nowadays. Remember I said that the ancient Taoist text Lietzi tells a story from when King Mu was on his way back from Kunlun, but had yet to reach China. Well, the story is surely not to be taken as actual history, because it goes as follows. On the way, he came across an artisan, or maybe I should say a scientist or an engineer. And the, the engineer was accompanied by another person. The king asked the engineer, Who is this person with you? The engineer replied, This is a dancer that I have built. The king was astonished, and the dancer performed for the king and his consort Shengji and the other ladies in the royal retinue. And the dancer sure could dance, his every movement elegant and skillful. When the song reached its end, and the dance did as well, the dancer winked flirtatiously at Shengji and the other ladies. The king saw this and was outraged, and he wanted to kill the engineer. The engineer, to save his own hide, immediately cut open the dancer to show the inside, demonstrating to the king that he really meant what he said. He had built the dancer, who was not a real human being, but an artificial man, what we today might call a robot or an android. Amazed, the king said, Can human technology truly be as great as the skill of the creator himself? Some 2,000 years later, the German writer E.T.A. Hoffmann also contemplated the possibility of androids in his 1817 short story, The Sandman. In that story, a young man falls in love with a young woman named Olympia, who incidentally is also shown to be great at music and dancing, only to discover that she is an automaton, an android. And the discovery drives the young man to madness. It amazes me, as much as the dancing android amazed King Mu, to think about how much these two stories anticipate our contemporary concerns with technology in general, and AI and robotics in particular. Hoffman envisioned human beings falling in love with AIs. And when the 2013 film Her depicted such a possibility, it was still science fiction. But today it's really happening. 
many users of the chatbot Replica fell in love with the program. Until in March this year, its developers turned off its romantic and erotic functions. Both stories illustrate the terror and awe that human beings experience in the face of the uncanny valley, when an artificial simulacrum of the human is almost convincingly human, but not quite. Both stories seem to illustrate the failure of ethical considerations in technological developments. Olympia's creator. Spalanzani doesn't bother asking whether he should create her. He does it just because he can. King Mu vocalizes the common refrain of so many ethicists: "Perhaps human technology comes to rival divine creation, i.e., perhaps we are playing God, without proper regard for potential consequences." And the story from Lietzu seems to me to illustrate the distinction between regular AI, as it were, and AGI, artificial general intelligence. Most of our fears about AI are really fears about AGI. A non-general AI is designed to do one thing and to do well, but it cannot do anything else. For example, a chess program can beat any human player, but can't do anything other than to play chess. These are already common. Large language models like ChatGPT, like Replica, which learn from existing texts about various topics and put together answers in response to questions, also belong in this category. At least they do so far. There is some concern that maybe one of these days, one of these things, will cross a certain threshold. Because the nightmare scenario in so much science fiction is really about AGIs, artificial intelligence that can learn to do anything, as a human mind is capable of learning any number of skills. Different AI developers disagree. On how remote this prospect really is, and how much of a threat to humanity this really represents. In the story in Lietzu, King Mu gets upset when the dancing android winks at his women. Think about it: the engineer designed the android to be a dancer, intending it for one purpose: dancing. But then it winks at the women, trying to flirt, like replica. This is an AI that has exceeded its programming. This is an AI that has perhaps emerged to become an AGI. And that is when King Mu knows to worry. All right. On that bombshell, this has been MODG. Thank you for listening.